you've got a weed in the garden, you don't just cut the leaves off and hope it will die. You know new leaves will grow to keep it alive. The way you eliminate a weed from a garden is by pulling it out of the root. The same is to be said of government's entanglement with corporations. You cannot get rid of the corruption and favor-seeking of corporate executives, the more metaphorical leaf in the government corruption weed, and expect the weed to just disappear. The root of the problem lies in the fact that government is willing and able to give the money out and give the favors out. Some people may say, well, we can't get rid of all subsidies. Companies rely on them to survive, and consumers rely on them to purchase cheaper goods and services. That's an outright lie. If anything, subsidies lead to, like all price ceilings, lead to shortages and higher prices than would otherwise exist. Through the prevention of competition and the shifting of new investment, because of that price ceiling, that without government picking up the bill, which really just means that we all pick up the bill and therein lies the fallacy of cheaper goods and services, quote unquote, you know, without that, companies would have to raise prices or they would go out of business. And companies rely on subsidies to keep would-be competitors from entering the marketplace. Competition is ultimately what drives prices down. They rely on their size and scope as an industry icon to get money from government in the name of lower prices solely because they know any would-be competitor without the political connections would be unable to, to obtain the same subsidy and would be at a competitive disadvantage. It incentivizes the underemployment of real resources. By artificially keeping companies afloat that without the subsidy would have to raise prices or would go out of business, we're allowing entrepreneurs with poor judgment that no investor privately would trust to continue to allocate resources in ways that are less valuable to society than those resources could otherwise be used. It also prevents the need for capital investment to increase productivity and lower real prices in order to outcompete. Crony capitalists get it both ways. They get to keep ultra-low, uncompetitive prices, and they also have ultra-high per-unit production costs. They have low labor efficiency, yet high profits. Why is this a better idea than letting the real resources that are being underemployed flow to their most valued use? It's not. Why is it that we trust government to make the right decisions and who to give money to? I just imagine if instead of government, the taxpayers were just shareholders and the CEO came to the shareholders and said, listen, folks, I'm going to need another $100 million. The prices are going to have to go up. We're going to sell less products. We're going to have to fire people. At the current price, we just can't make a profit. Maybe the first year they'll buy the investors, the shareholders. They would buy a sob story about a bad economy or whatnot. Maybe even for a second year, if the company has been proven in the past to offer a viable product at a profitable price. But if nothing changed after a couple of years and the company was not making a profit still, investors would, would not continue to put more money into that business. They'd fire the CEO at the very least. If the next CEO couldn't get the business on track to profitability, the company would eventually go out of business and liquidate all its assets at, at a bankruptcy auction. Creditors would line up to get paid back and entrepreneurs and their viable companies would get in line to buy the assets at auction price and put them to a more valuable use. They don't just disappear, they get auctioned off to better entrepreneurs. And through subsidies, the bad CEOs, the poor business models that can't meet consumer demand at a price viable in a free market, continues to exist and continues to parasitically suck the production of others. The worst of all is the 
parasitic crony capitalist, they often become really wealthy in the process. The guaranteed revenue from government at first entices some new investors. The founder's shares become worth a lot more money. They often sell a big chunk of it off to the public market for liquidity. They build a defensive nesting egg for themselves. The taxpayers get zilch, just wasted resources. Wasted would-be savings and investment, all the things that we cannot see. The things that would have been produced had the market been allowed to work and entrepreneurs looking to meet consumer preferences without the backstop of stolen money would have put those resources being wasted to good use. At some price, the resources on the market are able to be purchased and used to produce consumer goods that are of great enough value to enough people that government does not need to subsidize these companies. Subsidies, though, are nothing new. Cronyism and government helping the status quo and preventing competition. It's been around since basically before the Civil War, beginning with the Collins Mail Steamship by, uh, run by Mr. Edward Collins in 1847. And the first subsidy is about as bad as every other since. Possibly worse. I can't say for sure. I'm not an encyclopedia of subsidies and all the subsidies in U.S. history. But there's some great resources out there that give a good history of the early subsidies and the long period in which there were no subsidies. And Bert Folsom has a wonderful book called The Myth of the Robber Barons, where the first chapter he discusses exactly this. And Bert has also given many speeches on this topic. And uh, I'm going to play a little clip uh, from him about the first subsidy in, in U.S. history. So let me, uh, let me play that clip for you. When he came in, because he was given a one-year subsidy for the 385000 and when he came back, people, congressmen were shaking his hands. You know, we see the, the ships that are out there. You're moving goods and traffic to and from England, and you're doing the mail and freight and all of this stuff. Passengers, he had a rate that would vary between $150 to $200 a passenger. All of this was taking place. And Collins said, I receive your gratitude. I'm glad that I could make this innovation and help my country. He said, now I do have to say something. I got off to a slow start in, with my ships, and so actually I'll need another subsidy for next year of $400,000. Because I got off to a slow start. People didn't know I was in business. It took me six months to get the ships built and everything. And then they didn't know, now I'm really going strong. Should we keep this enterprise going or not? My request is for $400,000. Congress gave Collins the $400,000. And the next year, Collins came before Congress and said, I'm glad to be here. Everything is going fine. I'm going to need $500,000 next year because I had caulking issues. One of my ships went out for a while. I had to recalk it. I couldn't get my Monday service going. I had to borrow a ship. All of these costs came in. I'll need $500,000 next year. The next year, Collins came before Congress and requested $600,000 to continue in his business and received it. There were some people who were beginning to look at this with a bit of a 
No. Hmm. What's going on here? Let me look at this carefully. One of these people who was skeptical was someone you may have heard of named Cornelius Vanderbilt. He had gotten into the steamship business, Vanderbilt had. He was nicknamed the Commodore. And Vanderbilt said, I think what we're witnessing here is absurd. He said, I, I'm going to go before Congress. He said, I don't know what Collins is going to ask for next year, but whatever he asked for, I'm, I, he came before Congress and said, I'll do it for half price. Whatever Collins asked for, I'll do it for half price. Wow. Collins came before Congress and said, well, last year I had 600000 Next year I request 700000 So what's Vanderbilt's offer going to be? That's exactly it. Vanderbilt said, bingo, Collins requested $700,000. i will do the same service for $350,000. Whoa. Congress is now faced with a choice. You have a steamship service that Collins has been doing that he asks, is requesting $700,000 in a subsidy next year to continue. And you have Vanderbilt saying, I'll do the same service for $350,000. We had, we had uh, a, a senator get up and say, how do we know Vanderbilt can really do it? He says he can, but if he can't, we're back and England dominates everything. He comes in says, I can do the job. We don't know if he can or not. We do know Collins can do it. Right? And so Collins won the vote. Vanderbilt's half-price offer was rejected. Congress voted $700,000 to continue Collins running those steamships back and forth. His four steamships. What was interesting... There was his ship, no problem there. It was what was next to his ship was the problem. There was another ship there, and he didn't have to use much imagination to see what was happening because the name of the ship was right on the side, and the name of the ship was the Vanderbilt. (laughs) And Vanderbilt said, I'm going to go into the steamship business with no subsidy. And he he was funny. He says, nobody tells me I can't do a steamship business. Those congressmen said they didn't think I could do it. Well, I'm going to do it, and I have no subsidy, and I'm going to do it. So four years later, and at double the cost of another offer, Congress decides to continue granting the subsidy to Collins. Now, in modern industry, the government doesn't necessarily grant national monopolies like the one Collins had at the time though they are very favorable to regional uh, uh, municipal monopolies and regional monopolies like with utility companies and whatnot. And further, unlike at the time, the Commerce Clause now gives Congress and uh, the executive branch and enforcement agencies a lot more power to craft laws via regulation, and it gives the enforcement agencies ways to use non-price barrier to entry through regulatory agencies and their power to just shut down businesses or prevent them from even starting directly through the regulators without having to manipulate prices to keep competition out. And then also back then, Collins you know, had the only 
uh, steamship cross-Atlantic mail and shipping routes. So there was room for competition. As Burke goes on to explain, Vanderbilt decided to privately, with no subsidy, start his own steamship uh, business. So um, Burt is uh, you know, basically explaining that through – he goes on to explain in that, that speech that through economization and innovative business models driven by the need to be self-sustaining, Vanderbilt actually turned a profit his first year with no subsidy from the government. Yet that didn't stop Congress, as both in the book, uh, The Myth of the Robber Barons, and in, in, the, in the clip, of this, the full speech that uh, I played a clip for you guys of, Bert explains that Congress, through the justification of basically loyalty to Collins and not letting their fr- friend hang out to dry, they granted Collins more and more money year after year. And finally, the final year, they had to grant him $858,000 to fund his business for another year and a million dollars in emergency appropriations to build a new ship after one of his ships crashed into an iceberg, killing 400 people, and another ship disappeared. The new ship that Collins built with the emergency money, the caulking wasn't so good. The whole ship leaked the entire way across the Atlantic. And when the ship got ready to head back from, from uh, Liverpool... Collins had no passengers on account of the soggy trip uh, for the people that that rode on the way there. And Collins auctioned off the ship that cost taxpayers a million dollars at the time for only $10,000. Meanwhile, with no subsidies, Vanderbilt is stealing business and customer from Collins and some of the British companies as well. And uh, Collins just can't get it together. Finally, 11 years later, 11 years later, Congress stopped subsidizing the Collins company, and six months after they stopped subsidizing him, it went bankrupt. Meanwhile, Vanderbilt, using less resources, and the English companies using less resources, did more than Collins ever could. The government never learned to let good entrepreneurs in the private market allocate resources innovatively to best meet consumer demand. And two years later... Congress gave massive subsidies to the railroad companies, the Union Pacific and the Central Pacific. Once again, the government investments failed. The entrepreneurs that needed the subsidy that failed, uh, that needed the subsidy failed. And James Hill, who had no government subsidy, albeit he did get some land grants, succeeded. And during the late 1800s was the only railroad not to fail financially. And again, um, just a reminder of the book, it's, it's The Myth of the Robber Barons by Burt Folson. It's a great resource for a lot of U.S. economic history um, going back in the 1800s, but also from a perspective of some of the inherent issues with subsidies and how they consume real resources for less efficient uses, while private markets with no subsidies, it gives some good examples in that book, how the private market with no subsidies under talented entrepreneurs with good judgment can deliver the same, if not better, services at a lower price to more people and subsidies inherently if you really think through the logic keep poor executive they keep bad executives bad executives and bad management in business and allow them to underutilize real resources that would otherwise be employed more efficiently and would better meet consumer demands and competitors would be happy to do that if the the market wasn't so heavily manipulated by the force of government There's a lot of entrepreneurs out there that have better judgment and can better appraise the proper use of the resources that currently are under bad management that needs to be subsidized every year by government. 
And if we let those resources find their best uses at real prices, then the resources are going to be able to, to better meet customer demand and people are going to be generally more satisfied. You're going to have more employment opportunities. You're going to have more capital investment. You're going to have more savings and real wages will go up eventually as well. So, you know, all those things are really good for the economy. And right now subsidies are, albeit they're not the only, they're a big factor in why a lot of industries just aren't expanding, even though there's seven, eight, 9% profit margins and they have tons of cash on hand. They don't need to. There's nobody that's going to hold them accountable. So they can just spread the cash around to the shareholders. They've got a stronghold on their industry. And corporate subsidies are one of the ways that they maintain that stronghold. Check out past episodes that uh, of the macro view. It's going to be all for tonight, folks. I really hope you enjoyed the show. Don't forget to tune in tomorrow night at 9.30 p.m. Um, and, and check, like I said, check out past episodes of the macro view. You can find them at macroviewnews.com slash podcast. You can also find all our episodes on iTunes, Google Play Music, on SoundCloud, on Podbean, and of course on Blog Talk Radio where I broadcast live every weeknight, 9.30 p.m. Pacific Time. Don't forget to like our Facebook page. It's facebook.com slash themacroview and follow us on Twitter at themacroview. Share the macro view with your friends and family and help spread the logic of liberty. Thanks, everybody. Have a wonderful rest of your evening.